1: Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a longtime friend. We've been friends uh, since we were kids. Uh, And uh, I'm thrilled to have the CEO of Clairvoyant Media Strategies, my old buddy, Barry Watkins, with us today. So welcome, Barry. It's great to have you on
0: Great Minds. Thank you for having me. I don't know about Great Minds, if I fit in with the the various people that you've got but it's an honor to be here and and to speak to you uh, a buddy for god knows how how long but it's been uh, it's been great continuing our relationship for as long as we have
1: so uh couldn't agree more so let's let's get into it barry you uh as a kid loved hockey uh new york kid saint john's kid we both talked earlier about you know alumni hall which we now know is uh, named after and well deserved honor for luke karnaseka but we used to go there as kids uh and you went there as a student playing hockey and playing roller hockey and you end up at the new york rangers in a dream job off a lark and a phone call i'd love to hear that story of how you got to the rangers working as an intern initially
0: yeah you yeah. talk a
1: little about one of the great names that we don't talk about enough and lost in history, the great John Halligan.
0: Yeah. It's it's a, it's a crazy scenario, but I was, I grew up a crazy Ranger fan going to the games up in the, in the blue seats with my, my dad and uh, two buddies. And I think we were in the next to last row from the, from the ceiling. Um, and it was like, I was a, a roller hockey player in, in Brooklyn. We played every day and I just was a passionate Ranger fan as we all were on that block in, in Brooklyn. And, uh, I was going to school for sports administration, to St. John's driving from, from Brooklyn to Queens every day. And in about maybe the second month in October of my sophomore year, I went to alumni hall and I used the payphone there, which I'm not sure exists anymore. And I called uh, John Halligan's wife, Janet, as the assistant PR person, they were husband and wife PR team for many, many years. I called and said, look, I don't know anybody in the business. I am a big Ranger fan. I have season tickets. I'm going to school studying for sports administration. I'll make copies, I'll get coffee, I'll do anything. I just wanna get a foot in the door. And I think I called on a Thursday and she says, how's Monday? And Columbus day of 1983 was my first day. And I was taking the subway in that day. And um, it was like, just amazing is that I'm on the subway and I'm reading the paper, of course. And which I've never stopped doing every morning of my life. And on the transactions, which I don't think they have anymore. It was John Halligan after 30 years or whatever at the NHL was leaving to uh, the Rangers was leaving to go to the NHL to run the uh, celebrations of the 75th anniversary of the league and the 100th anniversary of the cup. And I'm like, wow, my, my first day, literally the whole day that I got there was him being congratulated, for this, I'm going to work for this legend, and I'm not going to work for that legend,
1: he's gone. Fantastic. And that started for you, a 12-year run, uh, sort of part one of your career with Madison Square Garden, with the Rangers, rising from intern to assistant to ultimately the director of communications for the Rangers.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was really lucky. I, I worked as a student for three years, and then when I graduated college, I mean, luck had more to do with this than anything, but I graduated college in the in May of 86. They had made a change that year. They got rid of Craig Patrick and brought in Phil Esposito. And I knew Phil because I used to go to many games on the road and keep stats for Sam Rosen and, and Espo doing the game. So when Espo gets the job, he knew me, I had just graduated. And he, he hired me to be an assistant. He brought John Halligan back from the NHL to be the head of communication. So I did end up working for John for the three years that Espo was there. Uh, I traveled full-time with the Rangers. It was a dream come true, getting paid. The Rangers are on your paycheck and you know being a part of it was incredible. And then in, in 89, when Espo left, they brought in Neil Smith and a guy named Jack Diller was the president of the garden at the time. And Jack promoted me to be the head of communications. John moved over to alumni relations. And I spent six years as head of communications and obviously included in that is being the head of communications as the team won the, the Stanley Cup. And it's, you think about it, if my career just sort of went there, that would be it, right? Like you're the kid growing up, you're a crazy Ranger fan, and now you're in a parade, you know, I'm good to go. <laughs> Everything else was gravy after that.
1: So let's talk about there's a uniqueness to NHL fans in general, Ranger fans in particular. We both got lucky this year and went to one of the couple of the, you probably went to more than one. I went to one of the playoff games at the Garden against Tampa. And there is a passion that is completely unique here in professional sports. The only thing I can liken it to is the passion you'll see at a collegiate football or basketball, the NCAAs. But talk about that passion, the uniqueness of hockey fans, the uniqueness of Ranger fans.
0: Yeah, there, there is a cult of Ranger fans. I mean, there is, it is a, uh, it's almost like, I mean, it's a silly expression, but you know, you bleed blue. I felt like I did growing up and all my friends did. And You know, we went to the games and we had season tickets and it was 40 games and you built, you looked at the schedule and you built your life around those games. It wasn't like, I'll go to 10. There was no resale. You know, you, you went to all the games because that's how you built your life. And I think now that's the case. Like, I think many people that go, especially as you go the higher up, I think it's, it's a, you go to every game and I think there's a passion for Ranger fans and and hockey fans, I think there's a bit of pride that it's maybe has not been as popular as baseball and football and basketball, but, and it is a great live sport. To me, there's, you know, it's not a great TV sport, right? It's not, if you're not a big hockey fan, it's very hard to follow the puck. And they've done some things over the years to make it a little easier, but it's very hard for me to say to somebody here, I want you to get into hockey like I am, go watch a game on TV. But many times over the years, I took somebody with me and they fell in love, the speed of it, the physicality. Think about it. You have the greatest athletes in the world that play 40 seconds at a time before they need a rest. Just think about that 40 seconds at a time. So, a live hockey game is a tremendous thing to go to. And, you know, I think being around Ranger fans, and I, by the way, you went to a playoff game, which of course has, you know, bone chill, chilling energy, but you can go to a Tuesday night game against the Vancouver Canucks. And walk away feeling the same way hockey is just a and i'll tell you throughout my years at msg i ended up being there close to 35 years and the rangers became one component to my job one of the businesses but to me all the years i was there even when i left the rangers full-time it was still still special as part of my job to go to you know 30 35 of the games a year and it was a privilege to being around and hockey players are great people I mean you do not find bad hockey players all the years that I work with I you know I, I'm still friends with so many of the of the guys that I work with uh, for so long
1: it's a great great story
0: so let's talk a little about
1: 94 and the, the run in the Stanley Cup year um, it had been how many years since the Rangers won 50 some odd years yeah 53 or 54 depending on how you count but yes. <laughs> Talk about what that was like from the inside. It must have been, especially for a kid, a New York kid who loved hockey and loved the
0: Rangers, it must have been real magic, Barry. It wasn't, it wasn't, until, I'll give you the whole story, but it wasn't until it was over. And I'll explain why. I Meaning it really started two years before, like we won in 94. It really started in October of 91 when we traded for Messier. Right. And we gave up a lot to get him. And he had won five Stanley Cups with the Oilers, one after Gretz got got uh, uh, traded to the Kings. And we brought in Mark Messier. And it was all of a sudden we were a good team. We traded for we got Graves. We signed him as a free agent. We got Buka Boom. We had Leach. We had Richter. We had a really good team. And we're the best team in hockey in 91, 92. It is, you know, we are the best team. We won the president's trophy all regular season long. And then at the end of that season, there was a, a strike or a lockout. The season got derailed for a couple of weeks. We came back. We played the Devils in the first round, went to seven games we won. And then we were playing the defending Stanley Cup champions, the Penguins, in the second round. Lemieux, Yager, Joey Mullen, Paul Coffey, Barrasso, they were, they were great. They were the champions. And it was like sort of power on power. We were up two games to one. We ended up losing the series in six. And then so that was like we were so close. We felt that was the year. Then the next year was a disaster. Like everybody got hurt. We didn't make the playoffs. Roger Nielsen, the coach, got fired. And it was like, oh, here we go again. And then we hired Keenan in 93, 94. He was all about winning the cup on the day that he arrived at the press conference. that's all he spoke about. Mess loved it because Mess didn't want us to be conservative. He wanted us to talk about it. And that year, again, we, I think we were the president's trophy. I think we were number one in the league in the regular season. And then we go into the playoffs and it's going to be against the Islanders and I'll throw the records out the Rangers and Islanders in the first round and all that. We killed them four straight. I think we outscored them 25 to three. So that is a big advantage because then you're only playing four games. Then we played the Capitals. We only played five games. So we were somewhat rested then we went in and played in New Jersey, who had been the second best team in the league that year. So again, it's power on power. It's, you know, it's, it's we're down three games to two. It's the mess guarantee. We win in New Jersey with the guarantee. Matto, Matto, Matto in game seven and double overtime. We are back. Moments away from the start of the second overtime. So the players are on the ice. Both teams are warming up but mattel was still in the locker room getting a skate fixed
1: the only two guys left in the dressing room at the time was me and eddie olcheck
0: maddie in his broken english he pretty much said eddie come on give me some luck and remember just grabbing a stick and uh, put my lips on his blade a little bit as a joke i told him when i was ready so
1: i'll be back in five minutes with the winning goal and he uh, he said if you can do that that would be great I can almost remember the entire four and a half minutes that took place in the double overtime. First, Messier has this incredible opportunity where he's off to the side of the net, and somebody along the board just throws something at Brodeur. Hold the net, save, rebound, save Brodeur! There it is, Mark Messier. He's going to win it for us. Boom, nothing. And then the Devils take it down
0: all the way down the other end of the ice. Bernie Nichols a rebound out in the high slot, and he had the empty net. And I was on the bench already standing up with my arms in the air ball game over. Richter is looking for the puck and it's
1: hitting like three or four skates. And as Sam just yells out where's
0: the puck? Where's the puck? It's in the corner and
1: has got it. You know just a few seconds later Bukumum drives it in and I remember JD saying wow Matteau looks really fresh out there. I remember thinking to myself put your stick down and good things might happen
0: saw for the Devils plays across cross-ice into the far corner. matteau swoops in to intercept. The puck had gone into the corner, and I saw Stefan Matteau coming around the net. I didn't think he was going to try and stuff it in. I thought he'd, you know, maybe take it by the boards or pass it out in front to someone. Interesting enough,
1: there was a discussion about Berl moving from right to left, and when he did,
0: he would put his paddle down. I put my stick down, and I just had a very weak shot on net. It's funny, I'm about as distant as you can be on the ice. And I'm looking and just... I swear, I thought I saw the puck go in there. I saw the puck going in
1: very, very slowly. I didn't hear the crowd going crazy because they couldn't see it. The toes hands go up. I saw the light go on. And then the
0: place went berserk. And then you're going to go to the finals. And then in the finals, you're up three. You lose game one. We win three in a row. Okay, we're only playing Vancouver. We beat the tough team, New Jersey. We're good to go. We come home for game five. There's going to be a celebration. Everybody's in a great mood. They go up three, nothing. We tie it at three and take over the game. And then they score four, five, and six. We're on a jet back to Vancouver, lose game six. And all of a sudden you're hanging by the skin of your teeth. Game seven, you win by one goal. And until that buzzer went off, that is the only time you relaxed. And then, then it was party time. Then it was, that is a time of a life. The parade, the, the having the cup at my house, you know, the amount of things that we did, that was an incredible experience. Talk about a dream come true. Amazing story. So go back to that 91, 92. And
1: I remember that vividly. My recollection is there was also a baseball strike around that time. And the NHL was really having a moment where it had broken beyond the core fans. And I remember NHL jerseys became a big fashion thing with not only with men, but with women. Did the NHL that year when the the lockout, did they miss an opportunity then uh, and Um, my theory, and you really know, so this is just a theory from the outside, is that they lost an opportunity to grow beyond the core back then, and that to some degree still resonates today. I think hockey with their core fans is King Kong. But have they missed an opportunity reflecting on that strike and the timing when when baseball was out? They could have been the only game in town.
0: Yeah, just to... Yeah, I, I don't know that I agree with that. I think, first off, just on the years, the year that you're talking about with the baseball strike was at the, when we won the cup in June of 94, then the lockout was after that. There was two okay. there was a strike okay. in 91, there was a lockout, and it knocked out half the season. And we loved it because we got the cup an extra three months because okay. champions. We kept it going, so we didn't mind it. But That part of it was, and then there's also the 94 lockout, and then I think it was the 05-06 season or 03-04, years later, they lost a whole season, and that was the year they put in a salary cap, and I think I think smart people could argue. You know, they agree, they disagree. You lost a season. You know, the year you're talking about, they had a lot of momentum. I mean, the Rangers, the Rangers winning in New York elevated the sport. It was well, Gary's first, I think it was Gary's first full year with the All Star game in the Garden in 94. It was a big deal, but it was Gary's first year as commissioner. And I think, look, you can't take anything away about what he did in terms of rights, about getting the game in Florida and California and Texas. So many things were done. I, I feel like if there was ever a limit to hockey, it goes back to what we talked about, which is it just doesn't translate on TV. It's very hard to create and, and, and get the fan base even more and more and more and more because it's hard to get people into it on TV. You know, and it's, it's expensive to go to a game. You know, if you go, you may go to, to one game, you know? Great. Okay.
1: That's a great answer. And your insights are certainly more uh, insightful and uh, uh, valuable than mine on on the subject. So let's talk about uh, that leap you took from the Rangers to MSG Network, and then ultimately to running communications for the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden.
0: Yeah. And that was, look, I, I, as I said, like, being a part of the Stanley Cup, if, if my career sort of derailed there, I, I think I would have felt like I hit the lottery. But, you know, moving to MSG Network for two years, we had the Yankee rights and the Met rights. That was fantastic experience and learning marketing and sales, a very, very different position. And then, you know, I got a, an opportunity that was presented that was unexpected when I was really, I think I was still 32. But I'd been there for 14 years and, you know, I, they gave me an opportunity to be head of communications and I just I don't know that I was ready for it. I I don't know that I would have made that decision if I was a senior person at the time, but they hadn't had a lot of luck with people that were running the communications group at the garden. I think from when I was there and from 83 to 97 maybe there was eight or nine different people that had come through. So I think they said, well, okay, well, he's been here for a while, he knows it, You know, we'll sort of teach him. I, I was significantly younger and less experienced than the rest of the executive committee. And a lot of it was like, you know, it seemed like on, on day one, we had the Marv Albert scandal. And in, in year one, we bought Radio City Music Hall. So many things happened and you just learned w- while you were doing it. And frankly, the key for me back then, and it, and it didn't change right up until I left in 2017, was I had a great group of people around me. There was a head of communications for entertainment and the Rangers and the Knicks and corporate. And if those people weren't fabulous at their job and great team players, I never ever would have had that experience. I, I, can, I can run through the names of bringing in Mary Pat Clark from the NHL in 98 that allowed me to survive and John Rosasco at the Rangers and Danny Schoenberg at, in the network and uh, Billy Streets and, and Michael Cordova in entertainment. They were so good that I just sort of managed a group, dealt with what was the biggest biggest issues, and I just learned as as I went. And and the and the biggest factor was when we split off from Cablevision in 2010 and became our own public company. I, I didn't know the first thing about financial communications and earnings calls and any of that. And having really smart people there that knew that a lot better than I did, and I just had to oversee it and manage it and make sure nothing sort of was screwed up. I certainly learned enough about it to be able to speak intelligently about it, but that wasn't my expertise. And uh, it was a great learning experience and has put me in a position, You know, all of those experiences, now I run my own company and all of those experience made me the the ability to to go out and pitch business now to, to get people to hire me, to work with me because I've got these great experiences
1: you sure do and the garden that you took over in the comms role that company grew and changed really quickly
0: yeah like i I gotta tell you like it's remarkable like when i when i got the job in 97 of overseeing everything it was it was basically an arena with two teams when the teams weren't playing you had big time events concerts college basketball boxing and you had a tv network and that was the business right it was essentially an arena that but it was you know you own the teams you own the arena you own the network everybody wants that And then it seemed like within very shortly, we bought Radio City Music Hall and then the Beacon Theater and then the Forum in LA and the Chicago Theater. And we bought, we were on Broadway. we had Scarlet Pimpernel, we bought clothes revamped and relaunched it and Finding Neverland and Footloose and Nobody Beats the Whiz and Clearview Movie Theaters and Fuse Music Network. And now they own Tao and Boston Calling Music Festivals. And you know, it became really like, we didn't call ourselves MSG. We called ourselves, I think the MSG Company. And all of my friends, they wouldn't know, they just would talk about the Knicks and the Rangers. But frankly, frankly, I would spend a lot more time on the m and stuff than, than the Rangers was fun for me at the end. Not a, not a lot of aggravation there um, along the way, but it really became a, a big company. And then the, uh, you know, the, the billion dollar transformation in, from 2010 and we launched it in 2013 was a huge part of what we did as well.
1: Tremendous. And well, let's come back and talk about that more, but let's spend a, a minute or two, Barry, on the specialness of Madison Square Garden. There is something completely unique about that place. Uh, It builds itself as the world's most famous arena, and it is. Talk about what that special magic is that makes Madison
0: Square Garden unlike any other building in the world. Right, and I I truly believe that, and I don't believe it's because we're New Yorkers that we grew up going there. I think there's too many people that have come into town, both on the sports side and the entertainment side, um, you know, Zach Brown kissing the floor and saying, my career is here. I've played the garden you hear those stories over and over. David Grohl, Foo Fighters essentially did the same thing. Um, it is a huge thing in people's career to play the garden as a, as an athlete or an entertainer. And I think part of that is New York city. It's in the heart of New York city. It's a building that's been built as it goes back 135 years and, and, you know, to whatever 1879, I think was the first one. And then the building itself, I think the uniqueness of the ceiling gives it character, the way that the, the ceiling, it's unlike all the other arenas you go to, you look up and you see scaffolding and, it, and it, it's a—it's just the upper echelon of the building, the garden, the ceiling, whoever thought to put that, that way, not only does it make it look unique, but the sound is great, the lights come down in a, in a really, really cool way. And I think it's a tradition of, of that. And I think that's that's very real. And there's not many nights you go to the garden and don't walk away feeling special. Like I can remember the first time I was there for the Harlem Globetrotters and in the, in the circus and then Vic Hatfield's 50th goal in 1972 when I was a kid. You just remember those kinds of things, and it's it's very special. And then you know the transformation that was done. What they did the best of everything. You know they they completely transformed everything without changing the footprint from the first row to the last for everybody, athletes, entertainers, VIP clubs, sight lines were different, concourses were different. The food was upgraded. The history was there where you walk around the garden and there's 20. there's an exhibit with the 20 greatest moments. And the, there's an amazing exhibit called Garden 366. that has got a picture and a caption of the most famous thing that happened in MSG history on, on that day. And it, it emphasizes, you know, um uh the popes coming in and the championships being won and the boxing matches happening and elvis performing and the and the the political conventions that were there you, you walk around and go wow this this place is is really special and that was a big part of what we did uh when the when we transformed it was to make sure that it was all modernized as much as it could be without changing the footprint and having the arena floor on the fifth floor which isn't great very unique you still have this traditional thing that, uh, that makes it very special. So
1: let, let's dig a little deeper there because it's such an interesting uh, subject, past, present, and future. The building is called Madison Square Garden because the original, which was P.T. Barnum's Trolley Barn, uh, goes back, I think, as you said, into the 1870s. Then there was a second garden on Madison Square
0: Cross um, the street. Uh, that was a McKim Mead White building, as I recall. Second, the second one was across the street from the original, right there. It was a palace. I mean, it was so expensive to run, that's why it didn't it didn't last because it was just too expensive. They literally built, I forget the guy's name, but they they built a palace before they moved it into the 50s. Uh the third garden was in the 50s. And, and it looked
1: done. like it looked like Grand Central Terminal. It was a yeah. beautiful building. Yeah. Then 50th and 8th. Yep. And then in 68 move to the current site where it still is and talk about Barry the challenge of a building where the floor is the fifth floor. That's unique also and not in a good way.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's very chill. Look, I wouldn't be the first person to like to or the best person to talk about it because it was the operations group. But I mean getting in and out was always very different. Like you went when we went on the road when I was with the Rangers, When you when you went to another arena, you either walk into the the ice surface or you walk down to the locker rooms. Right. Like to walk up and the ramp is still there, you know, getting concerts in and out like there's many, many trucks in the the middle of New York City has always been challenging. But that just makes the garden part of its unique, uh, the unique way about it. Your
1: business is a tough business. You're very much in the public eye. Uh, The performers are in the public eye. um, The executives are in the public eye. And you're at the head of the pile on communications. You're up early every morning. You're up late every night. Talk about that challenge. You're also a father. Talk about the challenge of all those years of creating some semblance of work-life balance. I I don't know how well you would have scored there overall. You had such vast responsibility, but that was a very unique lifestyle for someone. And you did it successfully for a very long period of time uh,
0: to your credit. Thank you. Well, I mean, successfully on some days, maybe unsuccessfully on a few others, but I certainly was able to stay in that position for 20 years. But look, my family was great you know, my wife, Samantha was, you know, she was there to raise the kids. I mean, she did all every, everything back at the ranch and was great. And I'll tell you like over the years, especially working for a guy like Jim Dolan, they let your family be a part of it. So yeah, I, I missed a lot of birthdays and anniversaries and that kind of thing, but I can't tell you how many events my kids got to go to. My, my son would say, I grew up I grew up at the garden. Like when he got a little older, I and I had to go to a game, he would just come and sit with us. And my family was, you know, taken care of in an amazing way. We we played the finals, the Rangers and Kings in 2014. And my son came with us on the on the trip. And leading up to that, my daughter came to Pittsburgh with us for one game. So my I don't think my kids felt shortchanged, but they they understood. And there was a lot of benefit of that. And frankly, like, I I love the pace of the job. I love that. I love waking up in the morning. And most of those years, there was no cell phones Helped quite a bit, too, because you weren't stuck in a hotel room. When you're on vacation, you can go out. And if you were needed, you know, you weren't out of pocket, you were always available. So I always felt like that. And originally, Blackberries helped you stay connected and allowed you to be in another place while you while you were working. I thought that change helped me Quite a bit, Um, but you know, it 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 was many, many, many more good times than challenging ones. It was just what you did. You know, with the Rangers, you were always on. When I was twenty-one, and Phil Esposito made a trade, and he traded Mike Ridley on New Year's Day for Bobby Carpenter, and I'm hungover from whatever I was doing the night before, and he calls at eleven o'clock and says, "We're making one of the biggest trades in Ranger history." You find a way to get it done. That's the way that I was built. So for me, waking up in the morning and reading all the papers and then reacting and jumping in right away and getting through the days, like I I thought, I felt like it was just one of the great opportunities you could ever have. And then as I got older, you know, you turned fifty and that life changed a little bit. And now my my new life, I left MSG in twenty seventeen, has a very different. I still love what I do, but it has a very different work life balance today than it did than it did back then where you're not on call, you know, like when you're on call, like I not to exaggerate it, but I very rarely went to a Broadway show or even a movie because, or I, or I never went on vacation outside of the time zone really, because that, that would hurt my ability to do my job if needed, because if something happened, you can't check out. Like, it's not like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm away. Somebody else will take care of this. I had a great staff, But as the leader of the group, it was my responsibility to be a part of it. So my life now has changed quite a bit where I'm able to have much more balance in it. Well, you're able to plan now much more.
1: So we're not gonna, uh, uh, you know, this is not uh, page six, but there are things in a role like you had as EVP and chief communications officer, things that you plan for and things that are unplanned for that just arise. I would imagine during the almost 21 years when you had the top, top job for the whole company, there were some pretty big surprise moments and some things that caught you, even someone who's as prepared as you are, off guard. And some of them, hopefully with the benefit of hindsight, were a little funny. Was there anything that you could share with us looking back where (laughs) it was like, oh boy, that was really something?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, there's 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 very obvious things that, that happened around the time with MSG, Oakley being one is an example where you're just sitting there minding your own business on a, on, not that we want to spend this whole time talking about Oakley night, but, you know, all of a sudden you're minding your own business and, and four minutes into the game, you've got a front page story. That's not, I couldn't say that was an expected thing to happen, yeah. but you know, you have the way you do these things is, the way you handle crisis, and I don't—I think there's people that, that are probably way better than I am. I did what I thought was right. I talked to a lot of smart people over the years like Matt Hiltzig and Ken Sunshine and Dan Cloris and others to learn what they did with very high profile people to try to make myself a little smarter. And I said, again, had great people working with me to have instincts on that. But you, know, you either had a, what I called a plan crisis, like say you're firing a coach, that's a decision we're making. We're announcing it. We're getting it out. We have a battle plan ready to go with messages, with Q and a, who's going to speak the rest of it. Like you've got a plan. It's in your draw. And I did that for everything. Like if HR called me and said there was a employee issue and somebody is threatening to to take action against MSG, I would get it. And somebody from my group, we'd put a plan together and maybe it was one out of a hundred that it was actually going to hit. I'd rather have it in advance. Whereas Like the Oakley thing, there's many, many like that too. And that's that's a very high profile. one. those things happen all the time. But there you needed a system. Okay, when something happens in this area, who speaks to who and when? So who needs to be? Is it legal? Is it HR? Is it the president of one of the groups? What is the communication process? And then you decide and say, okay, is this something with a statement? You just put out a company statement and be done with it. Do you make somebody available? And if so, you have to decide on your messages and you're, you're, think through the questions you're going to get in advance, which now I've made a living of, although I don't really do a lot of crisis anymore, and think through what it's going to be and state what is your position? And in the shortest way possible, get your position out as quickly as you can. And what changed it, of course, was social media, because the immediacy of things was just through the roof. I mean, in 2010, when Twitter became a thing, it changed the entire industry. Way back in 1987, when sports radio hit and WFAN, that was the initial change because it used to be, you just wait for the papers the next day and you have like a 24 hour news cycle. Mike and the Mad Dog changed all of that and said they're gonna they're gonna have a comment on this while it's happening, so you better get to them quickly. And social media changed it completely. And and social media wore down on me over time because a lot of times they didn't want to give you time to think. Like you know, they would say, We heard this was happening, we heard this is an issue. What's your comment? And you can't possibly have a, an intelligent comment until you get a chance to talk to people in that area about what actually happened and then what your position is. So I didn't love that part of it. And that's, you know, sort of one of the reasons you get away from it over time is, and plus the advent of websites. When I was in, in most of the time I was there, it was the news and the post and the times and Newsday and Sports Illustrated, and you battled with them regularly. And all of a sudden these websites became a thing where you're battling with these websites that you never even heard of, you know, and, and they don't care about the relationship with you. There's no give and take, Right. Right. In the
1: old days you had relationships with the writers and the editors.
0: Yeah, you know, but MarieClaire.com gets a story from an unnamed Rockette, and you want to try to figure out, you know, how to put your best foot forward, and they could care less. Like they're they're never going to talk to you again or hear from you again. They're not looking to 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 write something in the spirit of any sort of and I had a relationship with many, many media people in nationally and certainly locally, but when you're starting to deal with websites that you're not gonna have a relationship with, that's a much more challenge. I think any PR person will tell you that's a much more challenging thing.
1: Very interesting, very interesting. Okay, so all of this sort of cumulatively serves as a foundation for the enterprise that you launched about five years ago, Clairvoyant Media. Let's talk about what you're doing there. It's a focus on strategy, but let's talk about the evolution
0: and current state of Clairvoyant Media strategies. Thanks, Matt. And they, you know, it comes off of what you just said. You talked about crisis and what would have happened in the moment. What I love and what I do now is I don't really do crisis anymore. That 20 years or 30 years of that, like, that's not fun. Like I don't want to go to dinner tonight and have my phone start ringing and and take me away from that. But what I do now is at MSG, one of the things that we did and Jim Dolan was absolutely the first person I ever heard talk about media training and he did it back in, or asked us to do it in in 2001 or something like that. And the fact is like, we had everybody that spoke to the media be professionally media trained. It was ahead of its time. And over the years we had trainers come in and out and it was a very valuable thing because if you're spokespeople at MSG, we had hundreds of them. We had 50 broadcasters and 200 rockets and how many athletes and coaches and executives and the rest. If you can train and get people energized about when they're speaking, then they're gonna be that much better at not having the crisis because it's preventative. And you look now, just read, go to any way you get media, any way, read the newspaper, watch TV, listen to radio, listen to a podcast, however you wanna do it, you will find somebody apologizing or losing their job or saying they're sorry or wishing they can go back in time. And it's a crisis for them and their company or their brand. What I try to do is the people that I work with is to prevent that from happening. So a lot of it is the same. I work with corporations, I work with media outlets, I work with big name entertainers, I work with sports teams from the owner down to the very last player. And the the training is to say, here's what you're, if you're gonna do it once a year, or you're you're the a manager of a baseball team and you're going to speak 400 times a year you've got to know sort of the disciplines and not be intimidated by the media the media is a good thing it's a way for you to promote your brand it's to use it and deal with it in a way that's advantageous and not run the risk so what it means is messaging what is it that you want to say how are you going to deliver your message what do you look like when you when you do that and then when the questions start coming how we you know anticipating and preparing what those questions are coach after a game. I used to work with the coaches and say, I'm sitting during a ranger game, eating popcorn while you're coaching a team. I'm waiting for the game to be over. My job then is to help you think through what your messages are after a game and what are the questions and anticipate. So you can think about it in advance a little bit, just like you wouldn't get on the ice without practicing. You think about it in advance. And now that's how I make my living and what I've expanded even over the last three years, it used to just be media, media and social media. Now it's communication everywhere. People make mistakes, you know, Papa John lost Papa John's for something he said on a conference call. John Gruden lost his job for something he put in an email. Ted Cruz's wife sent a a group text to seven women about going to Cancun when the hurricane was hitting. One of the women gave it out Gave it out to the, to the New York Times. I mean, you, you see every day you see a mistake on Zoom. Somebody doesn't realize that they're being recorded or somebody walks in the background or they think they're off. So what I've done is I've expanded it to say, basically, it's not just media. Anyone who communicates at, at any level in, in any platform, to me, think about doing a podcast like this, a public figure or even a non-public figure does a podcast 30 minutes if some if it's a public figure and somebody's looking to take something out of that podcast, be, they're going to ignore. Say it's a thirty minute podcast, twenty nine minutes and forty five seconds of, you know, just what like we're doing now. But if somebody in fifteen seconds does a throwaway line. You know, we had a coach named Larry Brown at the Knicks years ago, and we'd work with him and work with him not to be controversial because then he would have to deal with the fallout. And he was available for 10 minutes after a game. And Stefan Marbury was his headache and a a a best player at the time. And we get him going and he would be all right for 10 minutes, just be on message. And then the last 15 seconds, he would take like the fifth question about Marbury. And finally, he'd say, what do you want me to say? We got a point guard without a head out there. And it didn't matter what he said. The rest of the session, the back page of the New York Post the next day was Larry Brown chopping off Stefan Marbury's head because it doesn't matter. So my job is to say, you've gotta be disciplined for the entire time that you're speaking. And it could be to employees. It could be to clients. It could be on a panel. It could be at an industry conference. It doesn't just have to be media and social media.
1: And it's a real
0: mix of offense and defense. Of course. I mean, look, the media is a good thing. Like this isn't to scare people, but again, everybody's different. I'll work with a CEO who will pick and choose. They, they want to do media maybe three times a year outside of an earnings call. And then, like I said, I'll deal with a manager who has got to do it 400 times. I mean, and I, what I try to do with my presentations is it's not one size fits all. If I'm trained, if I'm training 35 top executives for a fortune 100 company that's a very different presentation than going in and dealing with a group of athletes and I use examples to say okay if you're the executive group you're going to see examples of other executives that have done this really well like Tim Cook of Apple and then people who haven't done it well if you're an athlete I'm going to show you examples of athletes that have done it really well like a Derek Jeter or a Tom Brady and then people that haven't done it well so it resonates with you. You know when, when you go, but yes, it's very much to be offensive. But I I like to think that you know, I work with broadcasters. They speak for a living, right? They have to be very very focused on what they're saying during a ball game. But also, you know, Jeremy Roenick was on NBC, decides to go on Barstool Sports, and all of a sudden says something on Barstool Sports he never would have said on NBC on the air, and lost his job for it. Right, so you show people examples and say, okay, because it's bar stool, that doesn't mean that you now you know let your hair down and say whatever it is that you want to say. You've got to understand that if there's promotion that's good for you or your brand or the company's brand or the network, there's a reason to do it. But you've got to be thoughtful and strategic about it. You can't just go in and wing these things. Your your career could be at stake any any time you speak.
1: And you touched on it earlier, but the amount and immediacy of digital media that's really changed the game.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't love it. Like in the beginning, I looked at it positively where, you know, it's easy for us to get messages out, right. One way, but I felt that the immediacy, the media, you know, you'd have so many relationships where they'd say, look, I've got a story. It's four o'clock. Can you get back to me? My deadline is seven o'clock. That was the way that we grew up in the business. All of a sudden the immediacy of it And and the idea for exclusives, there were always fights. The news and the post, the beat writers were at odds all the time. They wanted exclusives and all that. that. Now it's at a level that is just, and it becomes you know, in a way, sometimes reckless, people will throw things out that that aren't true, and they take on a life of their own. You know, I don't, I don't love that aspect of it. But for the people that I work with, they have to know I work with star athletes, you know, one of my top clients is an MVP in their sport. Last year, like social media makes a difference. I just did a session the other day with young players for one of the teams that I work with at a development camp. And we don't even really talk about media until the second half of the presentation. It's all about social media. And social media is four different components. It's what you put out, think through what you put out, number one. Two is these young kids, they get responses from anonymous people who they don't know, who have nothing to lose. They try to get under their skin. The public figure can't react because that's number two. Number three is you know, if you're a controversial figure, you may not put something out, but if you like something or you retweet something, right, that's an issue. And the other part is some of the people I work with, they grew up in a social media world. They may have put something out when they were in the seventh grade that now is going to come back. So every training I do with young people, I leave them. The last thing I say to them is you now have an assignment, before you get caught, I'm not, I don't know who's done anything. I was 50 kids in the room the other day, your assignment is to go back or have your parents go back and scrub your past, because that is something you can go back and change. You can go back before anybody catches you on it, because who knows what you would have thought in the seventh or eighth or 10th grade versus now that you're becoming a public figure.
1: Very, very interesting. So now, just to wrap, I'd love to talk about something else that you do that really connects the head to the heart, and that's your long and successful tenure as chairman of Madison Square Garden, Garden of Dreams, which does incredible work for young people. It you probably doesn't get the recognition as part of the New York charitable landscape that it warrants, uh, but I think you do a tremendous job there, and I'd love to uh, talk about Garden of Dreams.
0: Thank you, and I appreciate you bringing that up, and I'm just so thankful that you know i was involved in the creation of it in uh, 2005. it's an amazing organization that every aspect of msg is a part of it employees rockettes broadcasters teams everybody and what it does it just make kids as 30 partners 15 are like illness related make-a-wish foundations children's hospitals 15 are community-based organizations like children's aid society And they have amazing amount of work that we do. And that is, you know, programming that are there hundreds of events a year at Radio City Music Hall, at the Garden, at the training center, where players or Rockettes go visit these kids. We have a talent show every year at Radio City with over 100 kids performing on the the stage at Radio City with 5,000 people watching them. And we also do scholarships. We pick I think it's 10 or 12 kids a year. We give them between 10 and $25,000 four year rides. We we have mentorship programs. We have, we do grants where we'll go in and take a million dollars and rebuild a gym, a dance studio, music studio with in one of our partner organizations. So we're not able to cure the reason, you know whether somebody's poverty or foster care or homeless children, or we can't cure their illness but we can make their theirs and their family lives better by being a part of Garden of Dreams. And the key to it is we never do anything that's a one-off. Like a player will never go see a, a child in a hospital and never see that child again and do it for media. And one of the reasons you say it's not recognized was because when I was there, it was like, look, we're doing this for the right reasons. We're not doing it for publicity. But the idea is these kids stay in the program for Garden of Dreams. I went in the other day for a Garden of Dreams meeting and a kid named Chris Falzone came up and reintroduced himself to me. He's working as an intern at Garden of Dreams. Chris Falzone was a a, a kid that was part of our program 10 years ago, and he got so familiar with us over the time. So it wouldn't be uncommon for you to go to Garden of Dreams night and a Nick game and see a young child. Uh, with cancer singing the national anthem. And then six months later, see them on the stage of Radio City Music Hall. You know, we have kids in that talent show that have been coming in there for, you know, there's this um, little kid, Oscar. He was three years old in whatever year it was. And he had leukemia. He just came from a treatment and he went on, he had the stage to himself. He played the guitar three years old. And then he went in the back and he banged on the drum sets and Nobody cared what he was playing and got a standing ovation. Little Oscar is now, I think, 16. He's been coming through the garden of dreams all those years. So that's the thing about it that's great. And one of the great things of of my post MSG life is that Jim and other executives, Sandy Capel and others, allowed me to still remain as the chairman. And we have a great people on the board that are amazingly committed, both internal people at MSG and several external people. And it's one of the great things and I'm just so proud to be part of it. We just hired a new executive director, Maggie Jacobs, who's fantastic. And she works with Rich Constable, who's in charge of sort of government and social activity at MSG, who has been tremendous. And they've done. They've actually made it better in a lot of ways, day to day, since I've left. It's just a tremendous thing. It's a great New York story, and you're a great New York story. <laughs> thank you. You yeah. too, Matt. I really
1: enjoyed our our conversation, and I can't thank you enough for doing this, Barry.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate it, Matt. And I, uh, it's an honor to be on this uh, podcast with some of the great people you've spoken to. chaptering, and other structural elements for this podcast are powered by Snackable AI. With the ability to unify all content in one place, have AI distill the best insights instantaneously, and share them seamlessly, businesses on Snackable create more relevant value for their audiences faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.